0: President Biden says he'll ask Congress for billions of dollars to help Israel and Ukraine, calling both countries vital for U.S. security. It's Friday, October 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in last night's Oval Office address, the president said the U.S. must back Israel's fight against Hamas.
1: We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. Also this
0: hour, what's next for some Republican-led states that pulled out of a bipartisan effort to prevent voter fraud? And some advice from the mayor of Salem for the crowds coming to celebrate Halloween a little early.
2: Do yourself a favor. Come by train, come by ferry, come by bike, come by broom, but leave the car at home.
0: Bruins win. Cloudy with some showers today in the 60s. It's 7:01 Now the news
3: live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Later this morning, President Biden is expected to send Congress his supplemental aid request for Israel and Ukraine. NPR's Mara Liasson says Biden made his case for. US. aid last night in a speech from the White House. It was only the second time Biden has addressed Americans from the Oval Office. he said Hamas and Putin both represent similar threats to America's allies and to its national security.
1: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. Completely annihilated.
3: Biden said if Putin and Hamas are not stopped, there will be more chaos, death, and destruction. The president is asking Congress for tens of billions of dollars in military aid for Israel and Ukraine, a tough sell on Capitol Hill, where many Republicans oppose aid to Ukraine. Mara Lyason, NPR News. It's still unclear whether trucks loaded with relief aid for Palestinians will be able to enter southern Gaza today. The U.N. Secretary General has arrived in Egypt and says the aid needs to cross into Gaza as quickly as possible. NPR's Gabriel Spitzer reports there is an international agreement in place to allow the supplies
4: through. Some 200 trucks and 3,000 tons of aid are lined up at the Rafah crossing. Under the newly brokered deal, trucks will have to pass a U.N. inspection point before entering Gaza. In the meantime, Gaza residents have no choice but to stretch their meager food supplies. A spokesman for the U.N. World Food Program says the retailers they contract with have just two to three days of food left. Bread is becoming especially scarce. The World Food Program says of the five flour mills in Gaza, only one is operating due to shortages in fuel and energy. Gabriel Spitzer, NPR News.
3: The House of Representatives may hold another vote today for Speaker. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan has twice failed to get enough support from fellow Republicans to win the post. Jordan is set to hold a news conference next hour. In Florida, lawyers are back in court today in the federal case against former President Donald Trump. It's over classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago home. NPR's Greg Allen reports a federal judge will decide whether a lawyer with an alleged conflict of interest can continue to represent Trump's aide and co-defendant in the
4: case. Walt Nauda is charged, along with Trump and Mar-a-Lago's property manager, with withholding and concealing classified documents. Nauda's lawyer, Stanley Woodward, previously represented Mar-a-Lago's IT director, Yuseel Tavares, until Taveras cut ties, retained another lawyer, and began cooperating with the government. Tavares is expected to testify about unsuccessful efforts by Trump's co-defendant to convince him to delete surveillance camera footage before it was seized by federal investigators. Prosecutors say Woodward can't ethically cross-examine his former client or attempt to discredit his testimony. Judge Eileen Cannon will decide whether Woodward can continue as Naldas' lawyer or should be disqualified. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The new extension of the T's green line will need to undergo a major reconstruction to fix problems with the original work. A four-mile section of the line between Cambridge, Somerville and Medford has tracks that are too narrow. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang says he just learned of the problems but says that other T officials may have been aware of the issues more than two years ago.
5: Back in April of 2021, um, is my belief that it could have been and should have been more proactively investigated um, prior to opening and prior to installing what we've done.
0: Governor Healy says she's frustrated and disappointed that T leaders under the Baker administration knew about the problems. Eng says a plan to fix the situation is in the works. He expects repairs to take several weeks, and he says he hopes the cost will not be picked up by taxpayers. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey will be in Lowell later today for a Senate hearing on infrastructure funding for the state. They're set to discuss the economic impact of federal investments in Massachusetts. Governor Healy is also expected to speak at the event on local impacts from federal funding. For critically endangered right whales off the New England coast, about half of all deaths are caused by collisions with boats. As Eve Zuckoff reports, a new study finds that most boats are speeding through slow zones designed to protect the whales.
6: More than 80 percent of boats failed to comply with mandatory speed limits in ports from Maine to Florida last year, according to the marine conservation group Oceana. The worst levels of compliance were in the ports of New York and New Jersey. In Cape Cod Bay, numbers were a bit better. About 50 percent of boats slowed down. Still, Oceana's Gib Brogan says there were egregious failures, including by a whale watch
7: boat. To see this boat going across the Cape Cod Bay speed zone, sometimes at speeds more than triple the speed limit it is shocking.
8: Right whale
6: conservationists are calling on federal regulators to better enforce speed restrictions and set higher penalties for violators. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve
0: Zuckoff. People in Massachusetts should keep their snow shovels handy this winter. That's according to federal forecasters. They predict a strong El Nino weather pattern will lead to a warmer and wetter than normal winter in New England. The phenomenon typically brings a few significant snowstorms to the region. It was behind the so-called Snowmageddon of 2010. It's 7.06. We are funded by
9: you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at
0: Innuendo and Innuendo.com. The Bruins won their third straight game. They beat the Sharks 3 to 1 last night in San Jose. The Bees will visit the LA Kings tomorrow. The Celtics won their final preseason tune-up. They topped the Hornets 127 to 99 last night in Charlotte. The Seas' regular season tips off next Wednesday. Mostly cloudy today with a chance for showers in the afternoon. It'll be in the mid-60s. Cloudy with showers overnight. Temperatures will be in the 50s. Rain tomorrow and in the 60s. Early showers, then some sun on Sunday. It'll be in the upper 50s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
10: WBUR supporters include Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Killers of the Flower Moon. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro and directed by Martin Scorsese, only in theaters October 20th, rated R.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy e. Martinez in Culver City, California.
12: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In a few minutes, we hear from families of Israeli hostages who say their government is not doing enough to bring them home. But first, in the U.S., a presidential address from the Oval Office delivered in primetime is a rare event, and because of that carries added weight. It happened last night. President Biden delivered only the second such address of his presidency, explaining his views on what America has at stake as Israel and Ukraine defend themselves.
1: You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction.
12: Today, President Biden formally asks Congress to fund ongoing support to both countries. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith has more. Good morning. So tell us, just start by telling us why President Biden decided to give this speech now and what he was trying to accomplish with it.
6: He is just back from Israel, and he wanted to update people on his experience there and tell Americans why they should care about these conflicts happening in faraway lands. And this comes at a critical time. Israel is ramping up for what could be a lengthy military campaign to take out Hamas. Emotions are raw, and in Congress, support for Israel is strong. But the war in Ukraine has been going on for nearly two years, and fatigue has set in. Biden has been struggling for months to get Congress to pass an aid package for Ukraine, and the funding to keep sending them weapons is now running out. So the president sought to link Israel and Ukraine together in people's minds.
1: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it.
6: Republicans are more uniformly in favor of supporting Israel than Democrats are. Meanwhile, Democrats are more in favor of supporting Ukraine than Republicans. And the reasons are multifold. But what Biden is saying here is that both of these countries need the United States and it's in America's interest for them to succeed so that. Countries like China and Iran don't get any ideas.
12: The president seemed to make a point to talk about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Would you just say more about why that was important as part of the speech?
6: What, what's happening in the Middle East has stirred up a lot of pain and distrust and, thank, frankly, like some real ugliness here at home. And Biden talked about a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy in Illinois who was murdered in what is being charged as a hate crime.
1: His name? His name? was Wadiya, Wadiya, a proud American.
6: And after the speech, Biden called and spoke with members of his family.
12: I want to go back to the military assistance that Biden wants to supply to Ukraine and now Israel. What kind of support is Biden talking about?
6: Well, the main thing in both cases is supplying weapons. And Biden made an argument last night that giving weapons to these allies isn't pure charity. It allows the U.S. to update its stockpile and supports jobs at defense manufacturers in states like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Ohio and Texas. And Biden was clear that American troops are not fighting this, these wars This is an investment, he said, to avoid the U.S. getting drawn into a wider conflict.
12: And we said that the president plans to ask Congress for a new funding package. how, How much money are we talking about here?
6: The numbers are going to be large. Biden said the assistance for Israel he's requesting is unprecedented. And the reason the White House is going big is because it is increasingly becoming clear that they may not get another bite at the apple in the next year. That's because of the political instability in the House of Representatives, the ongoing lack of a speaker, and the rising GOP opposition to government spending, especially overseas. And the fact that next year is an election year, which makes everything just that much more messy.
12: Hmm. That's NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Tam, thank you so much. You're welcome.
11: As the daily bombardment of Gaza continues and the Israeli government prepares for a possible ground invasion, the fates of the more than 200 Israeli and foreign hostages held in Gaza remains unclear. Some Israeli families of the hostages say they feel like President Biden has spoken about them more than their own government has. As NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports, they're turning instead to civilian volunteers for help.
13: You know, the only words that I can describe, it's the gates of hell.
14: Family photos hang on the walls and children's toys are neatly organized in the corner of the living room, a constant reminder for a father of the nightmare he now lives in.
13: She called me and she was terrifying, whispering.
14: Yoni Asher tells us about when, on October 7th, Hamas gunman kidnapped his
13: wife and two children. Telling me she heard gunshots, people entered in the house.
14: I can't imagine what it must have felt like to be on the phone when that was happening.
13: It was a quite uh, horrific moment, but uh, it wasn't the worst moment.
14: When Asher later lost contact with them, he checked the location of his wife's phone. It showed she had been taken to Gaza. But even worse than this, Asher says, was when the video was published.
13: Nine seconds long video, which I recognized and identified my wife getting covered on her head by one of the kidnappers. And I knew for sure that at that day they were abducted.
14: Asher's wife and his two daughters, Roz and Aviv, aged five and two, are among 203 Israelis and foreign nationals held by Hamas and other Palestinian militias in Gaza. Some of them have medical needs that are urgent and make every day in captivity even more dangerous, says Dr. Havai Levine.
13: 87 years old with dementia and 12 years old child with autism and needs close family member all the time. Who knows what hell she is now going through nine months old baby, who needs baby formula all the time. There are people with malignant disease who need pain, strong painkillers who are now in agony.
14: Levine is one of over a thousand civilian volunteers now working to keep the focus on the hostages. The world needs to know the stories, the events, the, the names, the faces of the hostages, of the missing of, the, of, the, of everyone, of the survivors. 26 year old Ophir Hanan is one of the founding members. She shows us around. Very busy, very hectic. It's been less than two weeks and already they've taken over two floors of offices in a glass skyscraper in central Tel Aviv.
15: Here we have people that are conducting direct communication with
14: communities abroad. We have a social media team, we have people working with influencers. They've pulled in lawyers, diplomats and even hostage negotiators. And they're doing all this with the families, Hanan says, because they feel the government is not. Our world had been turned upside down and no one from the government or none of the officials in power were were providing any information for the civilians. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has formed a task force for the hostage crisis, but his public focus is on destroying Hamas. So despite the warnings by experts of the danger this poses to the hostages, the daily bombardment of Gaza and preparations for a ground invasion continue. To demonstrators outside the Israeli military headquarters in Tel Aviv, like Gali Mir Tabon, the hostages have already been forgotten.
12: It's abandoning the hostages. First, we need to bring them back home. All the other
14: things can wait. Tabon's son lived in one of the kibbutz in southern Gaza, brutally attacked by Hamas. For the hostages, she's pinned her hopes on another world leader, President Biden, who visited Israel earlier this week. Her son met with Biden. He's on it, while my prime minister is definitely
12: not on it.
14: Yanni Asher has turned instead to the German government to help rescue his family because they're dual citizens.
13: And I beg them, I'm not expecting them because I don't know how to tell them how to do their job. I have no training in diplomacy or military.
14: He's doing what he can to keep the focus on them. He tells us he's given over 60 media interviews. He keeps the video of his wife and daughter's abduction ready to play on his phone at the tap of a finger. But when I ask him instead to show me a happy video of his family before all of this.
13: no, I just can't. It's too hard and um, I hope to hear the real voice, not on video.
14: Until then, Asher tells me, he'll keep up the pressure talking to anyone who will listen. He doesn't have anything to lose, he says. He's already lost everything. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
12: The banning of books in U.S. schools and public institutions continues at record pace. Students and parents who oppose the trend are sounding alarms
11: about what they describe as a targeted effort to restrict titles related to LGBTQ issues, race, and more broadly, the right to free speech.
16: They're basically just taking the voices away from marginalized people, BIPOC and LGBT, and it just seems insane to take those voices away and try to whitewash history.
17: We feel very strongly that intellectual freedom is the very cornerstone of our democracy. So, you know, it's time to try to make an impact and try to turn the tide a little bit on this.
11: Paul English and Joyce Linehan are co-founders of Banned Books USA. The initiative ships banned books to library, schools, or just anyone living in the state of Florida who reaches out to its website just for the price of postage.
12: Last school year, Florida school districts pulled more than 300 books from library shelves, according to a list released by the state's Department of Education.
11: English says the goal of Banned Books USA is to restore access for marginalized students and communities.
16: We want these LGBTQ teens to see there are other people like them and they should be able to read books about it just to make them feel not so alone.
11: Linehan says Banned Books USA plans to expand its initiative.
17: As long as book bans are being proposed in uh, basically any state in the United States, we would like to be able to provide this service to the places where that stuff is happening.
12: Nationally, the American Library Association reports that 695 titles faced censorship challenges so far this year. That's up 20% over the same period last year. This is NPR News.
0: You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we mark 40 years since a bombing at a U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut, Lebanon that's widely seen as touching off the war on terror. It killed 241 U.S. service members. It's seven nineteen.
6: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at
18: WBUR.org cars.
9: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window-and-door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com and Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org.
19: Hitting or paddling students is still legal in 16 states, including Texas, where a principal was arrested for leaving bruises on a student. Now the community is
2: reacting. We have had feedback from outside the district, some negative, but I think you always evaluate what's in the best interest of our students.
19: I'm Elsa Chang. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News.
7: Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your
20: day today.
0: Mostly cloudy today with a high near 66 and a slight chance of showers. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com and from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News, I'm e. Martinez.
20: I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faudel. Pianist
21: and composer, Fokker Bertelmann, better known as Hoshka, likes to fill his piano with all kinds of found objects to create new sounds. Ping pong balls, paper clips, bottle caps, anything goes, and his technique known as prepared piano can create some surprising results. Brodelman's score for All Quiet on the Western Front won an Oscar this year, and today he has a new album out called Philanthropy. I caught up with him ahead of his release. He's here with me now. Good morning. Good morning. All the types of sounds that you've made come from the piano. I find it just so fascinating. Could you share a bit of that process? I mean, this is really your signature.
22: Mm Mm-hmm.
23: I'm trying to find material that is changing, in a way, the strings. I've definitely used a lot of scuffer tape. So I tape the strings. It depends where you put the tape on. So when you put it a little bit upwards, it, it's getting much more damped. And then I'm starting slowly to pick things out of my basket of trash.
21: Basket of trash?
23: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's actually things that I put in there, like uh, materials that when you look at it, you're like, oh, can you throw that away and clean the room a little bit? But there's (laughs) maybe a piece of plastic or ping pong ball or like some papers that I found somewhere. Sometimes I go in shops that are very special like for example that have little iron balls or things where you can buy them in different sizes um, I'm using like a, a small children drum that I found in a Turkish market in Istanbul. I put that on the strings and I place things inside of the drum so whenever I hit the string the things that are inside of the drum they are jumping oh. and so they they jump up and when they land they build a kind of weird random carpet of sounds
21: the title of your new album philanthropy how does that apply to your music how did you choose that
23: well after coming out of covid there was a lot of stress in uh, my surroundings yeah you know a lot of things were quite negative and uh, I came to the result that what is actually left is um, in a way humanity and uh, no matter where we're going what we have is actually our connections with you know with our families with people that we know but also with with others that we might not know and come back into the positive news and um, you know strengthen the interaction with each other.
21: Let's talk about your lead single, Loved Ones. You're accompanied by strings, specifically a cello. What's the story behind this song?
23: Sometimes in the morning when I'm going in the studio and I switch on all the gear and I'm pretty much by myself because I'm quite an early bird. When I'm then going to the piano, a lot of times the melodies that come in my mind are very subtle melodic pieces in a way that have maybe a a certain melancholy involved because melancholy is not a negative thing it's actually involving both like sadness and happiness at the same time i think both oh, interesting both have to coexist next to each other i think so this composition was coming very early in the morning and i was thinking about the people that are around me that hold me in certain places there are not many but uh, the ones that you can count on they should be very strong
21: think about your loved ones and the few people you've chosen that will carry you, that will hold you and have chosen you. What does that sound like?
23: Well that sounds for me like warm and uh, strong in a way, very clear in terms of, do you need help? Yes, okay, I'm coming. Things Mm. like that. Yeah. I think that's in a way as well the musical language that I thought I want to try, which is like a main melody that is very clear. And there is, a, in a way, an A part, a melody part, and a B part, and then it's going back to A, and then that's it.
21: How did you start putting things in the piano, on the strings, in between, on top?
23: Well, I was always um, a fan of being independent. Yeah. You know, like, when you think about a beat, oh, I need a drummer. Uh, When you want to have a bass line, ah, I need the bass player, so you have always to call them up. But I wanted to find an initial possibility of whenever I have a thought and I stand up in the morning, I'm like, oh, I have this beat in mind. I just wanted to do it by myself and not using a drum computer. Whenever you change the quality of the point where the hammer hits the string, that also influences the sound massively. So um, I have an endless option. Maybe you can see me in a way like in front of a canvas and I'm I'm painting like let's say 10 colors on the canvas and then I take like some, like a spoon and I scratch the color back uh, of the canvas. So in some areas it's, I reach the very first color and in other areas I have a mixture of all 10. What it does, it actually creates tension and it relaxes you in the same time.
21: Yes, you can feel it (laughs) when you're listening. Yes,
23: yes. Through the decompressing, you feel much more calm. Sometimes people write me and they say, hey, we use your work when we are writing scripts for a film, or I'm using your work when I'm writing a book. So a lot of times the music is used for, or people are using that while they are creative.
21: Pianist and composer Hoshka, his new album, Philanthropy, is out today. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next and coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We talk to the mayor of which city, otherwise known as Salem, who has pointers for people planning a visit during this Halloween season. It's 7.29. There's nothing like live radio with the WBUR app. You can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade six to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit TCHS.org. And Circle Furniture, with sustainably sourced sectionals, sofas, ottomans, and more during their annual upholstery event through
24: October. CircleFurniture.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says Hamas is seeking to annihilate Israel as a neighboring democracy, the same that Moscow is trying to do to Ukraine. For that reason, the president says he will ask Congress for funding to help Israel defeat Hamas, as well as additional money to help Kiev continue fending off Russia's invasion.
1: You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising.
24: The president was speaking last night from the Oval Office in an address to the nation. It follows Biden's trip to Tel Aviv on Wednesday. The U.N.'s World Food Program is hoping to begin moving trucks carrying humanitarian aid across Egypt's border today into Gaza. Samer Abdel-Jaber is with the WFP.
16: We've been able to reach up to 500,000 people, half a million people since the start of the escalation. Uh, Around 200 of them are in shelters, and we're reaching them with bread every day. Uh, But we have also food vouchers for people to go to shops that are around them. So in short, yes, we're able to reach people, but our stocks are depleting rapidly.
24: He was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. This is NPR News from Washington. This is
0: WBUR In Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Seventy percent of Massachusetts voters support legislation that would allow overdose prevention centers. Those are also called supervised consumption sites and are used to combat overdose deaths. WBOR's Martha Biebinger reports.
18: The poll conducted online was supported by the state's Medical Society and Hospital Association, along with public health and civil rights groups. They're trying to advance a stalled bill that would clear the way for such clinics. Boston Medical Center's Dr. Miriam Kamarami says she needs this option now.
21: We're at historically high levels of overdose death. It doesn't prevent us from providing treatment. It doesn't compete with treatment. It's just a tool for helping people not to die of overdoses.
18: Watching someone use illegal drugs and reversing an overdose in a clinic is likely illegal, so advocates want a state law that would protect such sites and clinic staff. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: Boston area medical staff say their hospitals are not adequately responding to the conflict in Israel and Gaza. Doctors at Tufts and Boston Children's Hospital tell the Boston Globe their institutions have not addressed civilian casualties in Gaza. They say they feel like responses have been one-sided toward Israel. Tufts says it condemns all acts of terrorism. Boston Children's has not responded to requests for comment. Teams of rowers will be flocking to the Charles River today for the head of the Charles. The three-day annual rowing regatta gets underway in just a few minutes. It attracts thousands of athletes. This year, that includes the U.S. national team, the Ukrainian national team, and two teams crewed entirely by women who've survived cancer. Beth Cole is head of the Survivor Rowing Network, which connects cancer survivors with the sport.
9: There is something magical about being on the water. So that's something that a lot of people take comfort in and find a lot of joy in that. And I think then the other piece of it is the teamwork.
0: 75 races will take place over the course of the next three days. It's 733.
25: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide, more at BassBerry.com. The Bruins beat the Sharks 3-1 to
0: last night in San Jose. The Bees will visit the Los Angeles Kings tomorrow. Highs in the mid-60s today under mostly overcast skies. There's a slight chance of showers. Tonight, cloudy. Temperatures will fall to the upper 50s. Showers are likely overnight and throughout tomorrow. We may see a thunderstorm Saturday. Highs will be in the low 60s. Sunday, highs in the upper 50s with partly cloudy skies and another chance of rain. Right now, it's 54 degrees in Boston.
20: Support for NPR comes from the station, and from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvin Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers, information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California.
11: The crisis in Israel and Gaza comes 40 years after America was embroiled in another attack in the region, one that some believe touched off the so-called War
26: on Terror. Here's WHRO's Steve Walsh. Rabbi Arnold Resnikoff was a Navy chaplain stationed in Norfolk before he arrived in Beirut on the weekend of October 23, 1983. When the explosion happened at 6.22 a.m., he thought his barracks had been shelled. The blast knocked him off his feet.
27: As we got up, we were slapping each other on the back and thanking God that we made it, that whatever hit us didn't destroy us.
26: Resnikoff then heard the sounds of chaos coming from outside.
27: And only then, because of the screams from the building 75 yards away, and also the screams from the Marines outside yelling for us to come help, we realized we had only suffered the shock waves, shock blast.
26: 241 dead, mainly U.S. Marines from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. A truck bomber had burst through the gates of the airport where they were sleeping on Sunday. More Marines died that day than on any day since Iwo Jima in World War II. Over the next few days, Reznikov lost his kippah, or yarmulke, helping to dig out the wounded. One of his fellow chaplains fashioned him another one out of camouflage.
27: He said, I want every Marine here, every military person here to know that unlike the country that we're in right now, where every religion is fighting other religions, we chaplains helped everyone, but not just that we did it side by side.
26: President Ronald Reagan sent the U.S. into Beirut on the invitation of the Lebanese government at the time. It was supposed to be a peacekeeping operation, but the country was in the middle of a civil war. Bilal Saab is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. He says the U.S. simply didn't understand what it was getting
23: into. We did not see the kind of opposition that we would face, and we did not read the terrain quite properly and also the regional context. We truly believed that we were there to sort of keep the peace. There was no peace to be kept. It was law of the jungle at the time in Lebanon.
26: A second explosion killed 58 French paratroopers who were part of the same peacekeeping force. A U.S. court would eventually determine that the Iranian-backed Hezbollah was responsible. Forty years later, the bombing is often cited as the beginning of what the U.S. would later call the war on terror. Again, Belil Saab.
23: I think that The modern era of spectacular terrorism, I would say, started with Hezbollah.
26: Mireille Rebez is an associate professor at Dickinson College and is researching the incident. Rebez heard stories about the bombing growing up in Lebanon. She says the lessons are still being learned in Lebanon and in the U.S.
21: It's important to address the roots of the problem. The indignity in which some people live are the main reason that Terrorism grows. People are not born hateful. People become hateful.
26: Stephanie Barrett Smith of Virginia went weeks without hearing anything about the fate of her brother, Lance Corporal Richard Barrett.
19: Then I think a couple weeks had gone by, and then the um, government car pulled up in front of my dad's work, and he just ran through the shop screaming because he knew, you know, what that car was there for.
26: There is a memorial to the bombing at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Originally, Barrett Smith avoided going there, but now she goes there each year on the anniversary. She says it's important to be around others who remember. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in Norfolk, Virginia.
12: A far-right campaign is pushing states to pull out of a tool that catches voter fraud, and now those states are scrambling for new ways to do the same work.
11: Earlier this year, NPR investigated how misinformation was driving Republican-led states to withdraw from a bipartisan group known as the Electronic Registration Information
12: Center, or ERIC. NPR voting correspondent Miles Parks led that investigation, and he's been following efforts on the right to essentially recreate ERIC, and he's here with us now in the studio to tell us more about it. Good morning, Miles. Hey, good morning. Okay, so nine states have now withdrawn from this ERIC group. Would you just start by explaining what it is and why it's important?
7: Sure. So ERIC is a unique partnership that allows state governments to share government data, all in an effort to catch voter fraud and keep voting lists up to date. Keeping voting lists up to date makes voting easier for people. It also increases election security. So earlier this year, lies about the system started going viral in conservative media, leading to this pressure on Republican election officials to pull their states out. But the thing is, these states still want to be able to find when somebody votes in more than one state, they still want to be able to use postal service information, for instance, to know if somebody changed addresses. Josh Daniels, who's a former Republican county clerk in Utah, told me that that's led to this sort of mad dash to recreate what Eric was providing to these states.
11: These
28: states have decided that instead of using a wheel, They're instead going to invent a spherical device that will allow them to easily transport items from A to B.
7: But it is important to note that Eric took years and millions of dollars to develop.
12: So Daniel sounds skeptical that yeah. this effort to recreate it is actually you know, possible. What do we know about these efforts?
7: So rather than a single hub for all of this data, what we're seeing is a bunch of individual partnerships to share this data one to one. A number of Republican secretaries have announced these sort of partnerships in recent weeks. But with a couple key differences to Eric, the biggest one experts say is that when you look at these agreements, the states don't actually seem to be sharing enough data to create reliable reports.
12: Say more about that. I mean, if they're sharing voting data... Why can't they share what they were giving this Eric project? Yeah. So
7: what makes Eric special is also what makes it kind of complicated. It gets data not just from a state voting official, but also from a state's DMV, which experts say is really important to be able to say with more certainty that a John Smith, for instance, who votes in Arizona, is the same John Smith as somebody who votes in Connecticut. But these new partnerships that have just been announced do not involve that DMV information. That's really hard to legally get and share. I talked about that with. Michael Morse, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies voting. I can't see a case in which the state by state agreements that don't involve the sharing of confidential information can be more accurate than error. It can't be. In other words, these states are recreating a portion of Eric just with less data and less reliable information. You know,
12: the irony, of course, is that people on the right are the ones who have been most vocal about their concerns about alleged voter fraud. But now your reporting also found that some of these right-leaning groups are trying to get into list maintenance. Tell me about
7: that. Yeah. So conservative activists are essentially trying to market their own fraud-finding software to states and local governments. There's no indication at this point that states are taking up on these offers that are contracting with these sorts of groups. But what we're seeing is the same people who were pressuring state officials to leave ERIC are now pushing their own products for these states to try to do list maintenance. Potentially, these products could also be used by citizens to make public records requests and generally just push this idea that elections are fraudulent in the U.S.
12: That is NPR's Miles Parks. Miles, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour here on War's Morning Edition, the World Food Program's Palestine country director talks about efforts to get desperately needed aid into Gaza. Another rainy weekend kicks off today with mostly cloudy skies and a chance of showers. It'll be in the mid-60s. Tonight it falls to the upper 50s. Cloudy skies will probably give way to showers overnight, and there's a good chance of rain on Saturday along with a thunderstorm. It'll be in the low 60s. On Sunday, temperatures fall to the upper 50s. There's another chance of cloudy skies.
19: That'll give way to rain. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need, OceanStateJobLot.com. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at VRTX.com. Magic Beans Baby
0: Store is closing its final location after nearly two decades in business. The owners say the lease on their store in Wellesley was set to expire, and they're ready to turn the page. The store will remain open through the holiday season. Magic Beans once had several locations, including ones in Brookline, Cambridge, and Hingham. State officials are hitting the brakes on a planned expansion at Encore Boston Harbor in Everett. The state's environmental affairs office is concerned about the thousands of free parking spaces proposed in the project and the traffic that could bring. An NBA legend will bring his chicken sandwich chain to Bebedee sometime next year. Shaquille O'Neal's big chicken is opening up in the North Shore Mall. This will be the chain's First, Massachusetts location. It's 744.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. dataiku.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm martinez Any day now, we're
11: told, the United Auto Workers strikes might expand, and that is how this strike has played out. The UAW has been utilizing the element of surprise and has kept people guessing where and when are they going to strike next? Nick Fountain from our Planet Money team has been looking for clues on where the UAW got this strategy, and he thinks he has an answer. The flight attendants of Alaska Airlines. At
24: Alaska Airlines, we discount fares, but we never discount service. In
29: 1993, Alaska's flight attendants were faced with this threat. If they striked, they were pretty sure the airline was going to replace them all. David Borer was their lawyer, and he says the flight attendants started to plan mm, counter-strategies.
26: Of course. Sun Tzu says that you don't attack your opponents directly. You attack their strategy.
29: Were you literally the guy quoting Sun Tzu's The Art of War at the union organizing meeting? Oh, yeah. The union spokesperson called a press conference. She got up to a podium and basically said, we are not going on strike. Yet! We are going to strike eventually, but we're not going to spill any of the details.
25: So, where do we strike? When do we strike? What do we strike?
15: I don't know. And none of you know. And none of management knows. And none of the traveling public knows.
29: They called this tactic chaos. Shorthand for create havoc around our system.
24: Now, live at 11 o'clock, News
29: 4. And the media ate it up.
25: Good evening, everyone. If you fly Alaska
3: Airlines, a labor dispute could affect your travel plans. Blooming
29: threat of a strike meant the flight attendants were still being paid, but the airline was losing out on bookings. Gail Bigelow was a flight attendant.
18: I had people calling me at my home saying, oh, I have tickets to take my kids to Disneyland. Please don't strike my flight. I mean, people I barely knew. And so it was working.
29: When, a couple months in, flight attendants did finally start walking off flights, Alaska was prepared-ish. Greg Witter normally worked a desk job in media relations, but he got trained as a backup flight attendant. Still remembers his first flight.
24: My heart literally was about coming through my throat while I'm doing this safety demonstration. Oh, my God. It was terrible.
29: How many flights do you think you did that day? One, two, three. God, I think probably at least three. Witter can't remember exactly because it was a total mess. It was clearly not a sustainable solution for Alaska. When the two sides came to an agreement, lawyer David Bower says, the flight attendants won big. We didn't lose a single job.
26: Nobody who struck lost any income. And we got a contract with a 60 percent raise that we hadn't even asked for.
29: Flight attendants are governed by different labor laws than auto workers, so the UAW can't follow this playbook exactly. But Boer says that he knows their president Sean Fain is borrowing the flight attendants' tricks, trying to keep automakers on their toes and keep the media enthralled by weaponizing the element of surprise.
26: Nobody's asking Sean Fain, "Well, how long do you think you can hold out?" They're all saying, "Oh, when are you going to strike the next plan?" And
29: that, he says, is exactly what worked for the flight attendants. Nick Fountain, NPR News.
11: This is NPR News.
0: It's Friday, and that means it's time for StoryCorps. Coming up at 825 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a mother recalls being struck by lightning and how it changed her relationship with her daughter. It's
19: 749. WBUR supporters include Merrimack Repertory Theater with Gaslight, a new adaptation of the gripping psychological thriller, now through November 5th. Tickets at MRT.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this
0: Friday morning. President Biden says Congress needs to approve billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine and Israel in order to ensure national security. Disagreements between Israel and Egypt are keeping humanitarian aid from hundreds of thousands of people in Gaza. And Ohio Republican Jim Jordan says he's planning a third attempt to become House Speaker in a vote planned for later this morning. Stay up to date on the news all day uh, here on 90.9 WBUR and
10: on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital for expert research-based psychiatric care. Turn to McLean, leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org.
0: A slight chance of showers today, otherwise mostly overcast in mid-60s. Cloudy in upper 50s tonight with rain likely overnight. There's a good chance the showers will continue tomorrow and thunderstorms are possible. It'll be in the low 60s. Sunday, we'll have partly sunny skies and temperatures in the upper 50s. But there is a chance of rain. Right now, it's 54 degrees in Boston.
2: On a recent Wait, Wait, the Solicitor General of the United States, Elizabeth Prelegar, showed us how she wins her arguments in front of the Supreme Court.
6: Wow, um, okay, this one I think I'm going to go A, unless that one's not right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm Peter Sagal. This week we'll see how best-selling author James Patterson handles our quiz on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the news quiz from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's spooky season. That means thousands of revelers are flocking to the so-called witch city. Around this time last year, about a million people visited downtown Salem, and that was up 35 percent from 2019. The city has limited traffic and parking in response to the surge of visitors. Meanwhile, prices to stay in Salem during the Halloween season have skyrocketed. Mayor Dominic Pangalo joins me now to talk about the benefits and drawbacks of being an iconic Halloween destination. Good morning. Good morning. So how many visitors do you think you'll get this Halloween season?
2: Uh, You know, I think right now we're tracking to be pretty similar to last year. So through the middle of the month, we had about 480,000 people uh, come to downtown Salem.
0: And what is this doing for the city's economy? How much revenue do all these people bring in?
2: The biggest positive impact is to our small businesses and our employers. We have uh, a level of activity and vibrancy in our downtown year round that's really made possible because of the visitor economy and really in the October season that we see the highest uh, level of that.
0: How does this seasonal surge in visitors impact residents who live in Salem year round?
2: It's significant. Uh, Like this last Saturday, we had about 95,000 people downtown. Uh, We only have around 4,000 public parking spaces, and we added another 1,300 at some satellite lots on October weekends. So the biggest impact is really around traffic and parking.
0: For people who do decide to visit, can you take us through where you want them to park, if there are buses and trains to take, things like that?
2: Anyone who's planning to visit Salem, do yourself a favor. Come by train, come by ferry. Come by bike, come by broom, but leave the car at home. So the MBTAs added additional commuter rails. They run every 30 minutes. If you are driving in, there's additional parking capacity at the Beverly MBTA station where they have a garage. And it's a one-stop train ride into downtown Salem and our station. Consider the ferry too. It's a pleasant way uh, to come here by water uh, and it's a great boat ride.
0: We mentioned the remarkable increase in the cost to stay in Salem during the Halloween mm-hmm. season. Are you concerned at all that this is going to become an experience that only wealthy people can access?
2: You know, there's market conditions that the city has very little control over when it comes to things like the the price of accommodations. We've put in place some controls and regulations around short-term rentals in Salem, and we're going to be looking to probably revisit those in the coming year. We have had interest from some other hotel operators in opening additional hotels in Salem, but that takes time.
0: At some point, do you think you'll have to take additional steps to limit the number of visitors?
2: It's hard to do. You know, the Haunted Happenings isn't a single ticketed event. It's hundreds of smaller attractions and events and programs and activities that are organized separately by community groups and museums and uh, private businesses. So really what we try to do is shape how people plan their visits, encourage them to think about using public transportation, manage the crowds downtown for the city. It's primarily a public safety operation. It's very hard for us to deter people from coming here. In 2020, actually, during the first year of the pandemic, we actively told people this was not the year to visit Salem. And there still was half a million people downtown over the course of the month.
0: And what about you? This is your first Halloween as mayor. Are you still able to get into the Salem Halloween spirit or are you just going to be so busy managing everything?
2: Uh, you know, I'm trying to do both. I, I have two kids. Uh, Halloween's a special time of year. We've always had fun with it. I dressed up as the mayor of Halloween Town from Nightmare Before Christmas for the uh, Haunted Happenings Parade this year. So I'm trying to have fun. Uh, but it, yeah, it's, it's a working holiday for sure for me.
0: <laughs> Dominic Pangalo is the mayor of Salem. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tens of thousands of athletes and spectators will take part in or watch the Head of the Charles this weekend. It's the world's largest three-day rowing competition. WBUR commentator Fred Hewitt won't be in a boat this year, but he's competed many times. As part of WBUR's field guide to Boston, he says the regatta is just one of many things that's drawn him to the Charles.
27: My favorite spot to watch the Head of the Charles regatta is Elliott Bridge, just upstream from Harvard Square. It's the last of the course's seven bridges. From the Elliott to the finish line, the boats have only a few hundred muscle-burning meters to go. The regatta is an October spectacle, featuring thousands of spandex-clad rowers, a rainbow of racing shells, and world-class athletic competition. But I've come to see the river itself as the event's main attraction. I've lived within a mile of the Charles for more than 40 years, and in that time, it has profoundly shaped my experience of the city. In the 1970s, when I took my first job in Boston just out of college, the Charles was notoriously dirty. Ancient sewer systems and centuries of industrial dumping had made the noxious, latte-colored water a national punchline.
20: The banks of the oh, be-
27: After years of grinding legal efforts and massive infrastructure work beginning in the 1980s, much of our sewer system was upgraded to modern standards. And as a result, today's Charles is vastly cleaner, despite the occasional release of raw sewage when heavy downpours overwhelm the sections of the sewer system yet to be rebuilt. Today, in much of the watershed, the Charles is often clean enough to swim in if we haven't had too much rain. In the calm of an early fall morning, a rower like myself sees the river from a unique perspective. You can sense the river's banks pulling on the broad black sheet of water. You hear only the plop of the oars dropping below the surface. Plump Canada geese dabble in the shallows. And a black-crowned night heron at the water's edge is waiting patiently for an unsuspecting bluegill. Over the years, I've built a personal connection to the river. It's a place for a walk with a new friend, a place for solitary contemplation in difficult times. When my mother died, the river consoled me. Henry David Thoreau said, A river touching the back of a town is like a wing. I think I know what he meant. The Charles has lifted me up with its resilience, its beauty, its constancy. The memories and meanings I've drawn from it have permeated my experience of Boston and enriched my sense of place. It can do the same for you. The river makes the city yours.
0: Fred Hewitt is a regular contributor to WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. Check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org fieldguide field guide. While you're there, you can sign up for a newsletter to get the field guide tips sent straight to your inbox.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. Brookwood School with Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, speaking in the 4 to 14 speaker series on October 24th. Tickets at brookwood.edu. And the ICA, innovative new art by Boston-area artists in the 2023 Foster Prize exhibition on view now. ICABoston.org.
30: I'm political reporter Anthony Brooks and you're listening to 90.9 WBUR HD Boston, 92.7 WBUA HD Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH HD Brewster, streaming at WBUR.org. And when you ask your smart speaker to play WBUR, WBUR Boston's NPR news station.
0: President Biden says Congress must approve billions of dollars for Ukraine and Israel to ensure global stability and U.S. national security. It's Friday, October 20th. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, doctors in Gaza are struggling under desperate conditions as they wait for aid and Israeli strikes continue. We
13: are trying to cope with the situation, but when you receive the news about your friend killed, you can't keep on.
0: Plus, officials are trying to contain an outbreak of bird botulism at a lake in California's Central Valley. And we meet Boston artist Ewing Suche, whose work explores power and identity, and recently, a
17: concept called the Karen. Karen is, to put it in plain words, an entitled white woman that demands service in, like, a public space that may be unreasonable.
0: Bruins win. Mostly cloudy in 60s today. It's 8.01.
3: Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's still no word on when trucks carrying relief aid to Palestinians can cross from Egypt into Gaza. The U.N. secretary general is at the border crossing, urging officials in Egypt and Israel to follow an agreement to let them reach Palestinians. Israel imposed a siege on Gaza after Hamas attacked its civilians and blocked water, food and fuel from the enclave. Later this morning, President Biden is expected to send Congress a fresh request for significant aid to Israel and Ukraine. And Bir's Deepa Shivaram reports Biden talked about this in his White House speech last night.
6: In an address from the Oval Office, President Biden said it was critical the U.S. continue funding Ukraine's war against Russia and supporting Israel in the aftermath of the attack from Hamas, a Palestinian militant group.
1: It's a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations.
6: Biden's message comes after his visit this week with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, where he reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to Israel, and as there has been waning public support for continuing to fund Ukraine. The exact amount of funding Biden is proposing is yet to be announced, and whether it will pass through Congress is also unclear, as the Republican-controlled House still does not have a speaker. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News.
3: Israeli authorities are evacuating about 20,000 people from a town near the northern border with Lebanon. The Israeli military and Hezbollah militants in Lebanon have been exchanging fire. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan is scheduled to hold a news conference this hour. He has failed twice in a bid to become Speaker of the House. and NPR's Lexie Chapittal reports he has yet to win over enough GOP support from those who oppose him.
31: The block of more than 20 Republicans opposing Jordan so far includes veteran appropriators concerned about his ability to pass vital spending bills. Plus, members in districts that President Biden won in 2020 and allies of Kevin McCarthy and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who object to how they were treated. Jordan met with a number of them Thursday, but Congressman Carlos Jimenez said the meeting brought little progress.
10: We haven't moved. We're still in the same spot. He doesn't have the votes to be Speaker.
31: Jimenez added that some of the holdouts urged Jordan to drop out of the race. But it's not clear who would be next in line or if any Republican could secure the necessary votes to win the gavel. Lexi and NPR News, the Capitol.
3: Russia continues to hold another journalist. Alsu Kermasheva is a dual Russian-U.S. citizen. NPR's Phil Reeves says she works for the U.S.-funded outlet Radio Free Europe. Radio Liberty.
22: Her employers say that she traveled to Russia in May because of a family emergency. And they said when she tried to leave soon after that, she was stopped at the airport and accused of failing to register her U.S. passport. Her passports were confiscated and she'd been waiting for that issue to be resolved. And now the Russians have detained her on this other charge, that of failing to register as a foreign agent. NPR's Philip Reeves reporting, Russia is
3: also holding American journalist Evan Gershkovich. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Governor Healy says she's frustrated and disappointed that leaders of the T under the Baker administration knew about problems with the Green Line extension. The tracks on the four-mile line are too narrow in some places. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez
8: reports the head of the T made the revelation yesterday. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng says large swaths of ties were installed incorrectly along the extension, known as GLX. About 50 percent of the Union Square branch and 80 percent of the Medford branch track need to have ties repositioned, Eng said during a press conference yesterday.
5: That does not mean that the trains are running today unsafely. It means that we're going to have the GLX constructors regauge the track to bring it back to what the project called for.
8: Eng said the T is working on a plan to tackle the track repairs and will release the information once it becomes available. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Congressman Seth Moulton calls Republican Party infighting over
0: picking a House speaker a national security risk. The last two votes on a speaker have failed. A third is expected soon. Moulton tells WBUR's Radio Boston that a lack of a House speaker has consequences.
4: So this chaos in the House of Representatives isn't just some, some you know, bad daytime soap opera do- drama. This is very dangerous for our Congress and for our country. It is a national security risk.
0: Moulton says it would take only a handful of Republicans to side with Democrats to put their choice, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, in the Speaker's chair. Members of the Boston College swimming and diving team are suing the university in an effort to reinstate the team. The team was indefinitely suspended last month after allegations of hazing. They're also seeking financial damages, citing the allegations' impact on their reputations. A judge should make a ruling later this month. It's 8.06.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A.E. Events, design and production of corporate and non-profit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And the Elliot Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. Elliothotel.com. The Bruins begin their West
0: Coast road trip last night with a win. They beat the San Jose Sharks 3-1. to The Bees will visit the L.A. Kings tomorrow. The Celtics won their final exhibition game last night. They topped the Hornets 127-99 to in Charlotte. The Seas' regular season tips off on Wednesday. Mostly cloudy today with a chance for showers in the afternoon. It'll be in the mid-60s. Cloudy with showers overnight. Temperatures will be in the 50s. Rain tomorrow and in the 60s. Early showers, then some sun on Sunday. It'll be in the upper 50s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
10: WBUR supporters include Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Killers of the Flower Moon. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro and directed by Martin Scorsese, only in theaters October 20th, rated
12: R. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's
11: unclear when desperately needed aid will be allowed into Gaza.
12: Food, water, and other critical supplies are running low for the more than 2 million people trapped in the Gaza Strip.
30: Shortage in the medical supplies, especially with the emergency supplies and the trauma supplies and the equipment that we are using in the, in the trauma room.
11: That's Dr. Mohamed Ghanim. He's an emergency room doctor who was working at the Al-Ali Arab Hospital, where an explosion earlier this week killed several hundred people. He's since moved to a nearby facility to tend to many of the people injured in the blast.
30: I can say that the, the majority of the casualties, they are civilians from women and kids.
12: Palestinian officials say that more than 12,000 people have been injured since the war began. Doctors like Muhammad Ziara say the work is constant.
13: I've been here for about 10 days continuously. I didn't go home. We deal with an imaginable number of patients.
11: And sometimes while doctors are performing life-saving surgeries and tending to the wounded, they receive heartbreaking news about their own loved ones.
13: We are trying to keep our thing together and cope with this situation. But when you receive the news about your friend killed, you can't keep on.
11: More than 3,700 people have been killed in Gaza since Israel began its bombardment of the enclave in response to the attack by the militant group Hamas.
12: And today is the day that the U.N.'s World Food Programme hoped to cross from Egypt into Gaza and begin distributing aid to the people there. Since the war between Hamas and Israel began and Israeli officials cut supply routes to Gaza, the organization has stockpiled almost 1,000 metric tons of food at Egypt's border with Gaza. On the line with us now from Jerusalem is the World Food Program's Palestine Country Director, Samir Abdel-Jaber. mister Al Abdel-Jaber, thanks so much for talking with us again.
16: Thanks a lot, Michelle, for hosting me.
12: So have you been able to start delivering food as you had hoped?
16: So, Michelle, I have to say that the situation is heartbreaking. Uh, People are desperate, looking for shelter, food and water. And of course, the infrastructure is destroyed. We've Mm. been able to reach up to 500,000 people, half a million people since the start of the escalation. Uh, Around 200 of them are in shelters, and we're reaching them with bread every day. Um, but we have also food vouchers for people to go to shops that are around them. So in short, yes, we're able to reach people, but our stocks are depleting rapidly.
12: So so what are the biggest barriers beyond the checkpoints?
16: It's the crossing, actually. We don't have access. So the main issue is access into Gaza. That's uh, the, the safe and sustained access into Gaza to get our commodities. We've been actually flying in. Uh, and uh, trucking lots of food around Gaza so that we can get it into Gaza as soon as uh, uh, the access is granted. And then the next step would be actually a safe uh, access to our staff and uh, contractors so that we can actually reach the people in need uh, inside Gaza.
12: So how how are you getting... You're, what I'm hearing from you is you're being able to get some things in, but not at the scale that is needed. How how are you able to get some things in now? Or is it just that it's so it's so slow going?
16: Not at all, actually. These are uh, from the stocks that we had before the uh, closure of all uh, crossings with Gaza. Oh, so I see. That's why I was saying we are depleting the, the stocks. I think we have only for one day worth of uh, stock uh, in terms of WFP.
12: I understand what you're saying. So you're saying that there were supplies that were pre prepositioned, but you haven't been able to replenish those stocks at, at all. But, I, I take it this is very different from other natural disasters or conflict zones that you've worked in because you obviously have very long experience in this role.
16: So, yeah, usually, yeah, you feel like the access on the ground, we go, all of us, we try to mobilize resources, but also the teams on the ground, this one is requiring a lot of coordination to make sure that, the first of all, the, the access into Gaza is granted so that we can work on the ground. So we, we're still missing the, the the first piece of it.
12: Have you gotten any word on when you're going to be able to to actually cross. I mean, we've seen some images that there are trucks there that are ready to go. So Do you have any word on when you are going to be able to start moving things in?
16: We're optimistic. So we've been hearing that it should be uh, within the next couple of days. So as soon as the, the confirmation comes, our trucks will be on the road.
12: And before we let you go, do you mind if I ask how you are doing and how you and the other uh, staff members and volunteers are doing?
16: Thanks, Michelle, for this question. Uh, We're doing fine. Of course, it's very stressful, uh, tiring period, but we're doing everything we can to reach the people in need in Gaza. But I have to say, I have around 150 staff and dependents that are stuck inside Gaza, and it's very difficult for them. Uh, Living with one liter of uh, water per day for each one of them, some of them are actually sleeping in, in, uh, in the cars, some of them are actually sleeping in the warehouse. So uh, it's been a really, really difficult for our staff.
12: That is Samer Abdel-Javer. He is the Palestine country director for the UN's World Food Program. Mr. Abdel-Javer, thank you so much for speaking with us.
16: Thank you, Michelle.
11: One of the bitter truths of the war in Ukraine is that Russia's invading troops have allies there in Ukraine. They're a small minority of the population, but their impact can be deadly. NPR's Joanna Kakissis brings us this story of what authorities say was collaboration in a small village in eastern Ukraine.
25: Talk of betrayal started right after the missile attack and it got louder with each funeral. There were so many funerals, sometimes five or six a day. At this one, Valentina Kozir weeps over the coffin of her eight-year-old grandson, Ivan. He was such a good little boy. He did his homework. He was kind. My son died and my daughter-in-law is in the hospital. We hear it's someone local who did this. Before the attack, about 340 people lived in Froza. It seems like a peaceful hamlet, surrounded by tall stalks of wheat, with geese and quacking ducks in the yards. Serhii Starikov, the head of the local administration, believed Chroza was a close-knit place.
5: When it the locals were self-starters.
7: They were active in sports and active in public life. They did a lot for their village.
25: But, he says, like many villages close to the Russian border, loyalties were mixed. And Lubov Platinka agrees.
14: She's in her 60s, bundled in a puffy purple jacket.
25: She sits on a wooden bench where she used to greet her neighbors. Not all were Ukrainian patriots.
14: They didn't greet us, they just passed by.
25: They were just waiting for the Russians to come to the village. And the Russians did. They occupied Khroza in early 2022. Platinka says two local policemen, brothers Volodymyr and Dmitro Mamon, went to work for the Russian occupiers. They arrested her son for his pro-Ukrainian views.
14: He was beaten for three days.
25: They put a bag over his head, tied him up, and locked him up. When Ukraine retook the village last fall, the Mamon brothers fled to Russia and Khroza began to honor its defenders, including a soldier killed in action in eastern Ukraine. His family decided to rebury him at home
23: this month. ARTEM
25: DEHTERENKO, A SPOKESMAN FOR UKRAINE'S SECURITY SERVICES, SAID IN A VIDEO STATEMENT THAT THE MAMON BROTHERS CORRESPONDED
11: WITH VILLAGERS VIA TEXT MESSAGES.
25: THAT'S HOW THEY FOUND OUT THAT THE SOLDIERS' FAMILY WAS HOLDING A RECEPTION AT ROZA'S CAFE.
23: HAVING FOUND OUT THE EXACT ADDRESS AND TIME OF THE EVENT, Volodymyr MAMON
16: PASSED ON THIS INFORMATION TO THE RUSSIANS.
25: THIS FUNERAL WAS SET FOR OCTOBER 5TH. Zhenya Pirozhok's parents decided to go.
29: I stayed at home. I knew they planned to go to the cemetery, but not to the memorial gathering at the cafe afterwards. But they probably thought, what's another half hour? Let's go
27: honor him.
25: Half of the village was at this cafe when Russia hit it with a powerful Iskander missile. Vasily Nebenzia, Russia's ambassador to the United Nations, claimed that Moscow had wiped out neo-Nazis that day. Genya Pirozhok says that in fact the Russians killed 59 civilians. His two brothers found the bodies of their elderly parents in the rubble.
29: My parents were retired. They took care of their farm and they milked cows. We liked keeping them company driving them around.
15: Ukraine's
25: security services have named the Mamon brothers as suspects, accused of high treason. They believe an accomplice in Khroza is still at large. Rain has washed away the blood from the cafe's remains. The only thing that's grown in Khroza is the cemetery. There are dozens of new graves. Father Ihor Kovalik, a military chaplain, came from the front line to help bury the dead. He says villagers ask him how they can ever forgive the neighbors who betrayed them.
4: Of course, as a Christian, as a priest, I must advise them to forgive, but I wouldn't know what to do if I were in their place instead. There are some things,
25: he says, that cannot be forgiven. Joanna Kakisis, NPR News, Rosa. Ukraine.
11: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Russia has detained an editor for the U.S.-funded Radio Free Europe for failing to register as a foreign agent. It's 819.
7: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by
10: donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. WBUR supporters include the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org slash events. The University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet, une.edu. And the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair, rare books, maps, and prints at the Heinz, Friday, October 27th through Sunday, October 29th, bostonbookfair.com
0: I'm Thea Fernandez. This week saw President Biden visit an Israel at war where he made a deal to try and get aid to the people in Gaza but could not meet with Arab leaders. Are the president's interventions helping? And Republicans continue to be unable to elect a speaker. Our weekly politics roundtable That's here and now. Listen today at noon
6: on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Mostly cloudy today with a high near 66. There's a slight chance of showers. Tonight, cloudy and a low around 58. Showers likely overnight. Then Saturday, rain and possibly a thunderstorm will have a high near 63. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations including hunger relief organizations with their accounting needs more at yourparttimecontroller.com and from the public welfare foundation committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms
11: this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez.
20: And I'm Michelle Martin. A long dried
12: lake in California's Central Valley refilled earlier this year due to massive amounts of melted snow and rain. That created a new wetland for birds in a place where wetlands have steeply declined. But now birds face a deadly threat in Larry Lake avian botulism. From KVPR, Joshua Yeager reports on local efforts to prevent a massive die off.
28: Evan King, who's a biologist, revs the engine of an airboat and launches it from a crumbling levee into Tulare Lake. All right, clear. The water covers miles of former farmland and stretches as far as the eye can see. King works for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and he's out here today looking for sick birds.
26: The classic look at a bird that's infected by botulism right there.
28: He points to a cinnamon tilled duck whose head droops close to the water. One of the main symptoms he's looking for is signs of paralysis. Inability to fly, skirting across the water like that. Botulism paralyzes the birds from the bottom up. First, it robs them of their ability to fly and then to breathe. The bacteria that causes avian botulism occurs naturally in the soil here. This strain only affects birds. And the warm, stagnant lake water allows the bacteria to grow. King steers the boat close to the duck so his assistant, Christian Alderson, can scoop it up in a net.
4: Coming right at you, right at you. Hey! Nice.
28: Crews have plucked about a 1,000 birds out of the lake since late August, and this isn't the first botulism outbreak at Tulare Lake. When it last filled to this level in 1983, 30,000 birds died. When you lose
1: 30,000 or 40,000 in a particular place, that's a lot.
28: Andrew Farnsworth is a researcher with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He says when birds get botulism and they're all crowded together like at Tulare Lake, that can make an outbreak worse. Lots of migrating birds are using the lake as a rest stop on the so-called Pacific Flyway, which stretches from Alaska to the tip of South America. It's more crowded because many wetlands in California have disappeared, by some counts, 90%.
24: That puts these wetland birds that need the water resources in those habitats in an extremely
10: bad position.
28: Barnesworth says North American bird populations have also dropped by over a quarter in the last 50 years, and a major outbreak at Tulare Lake could have big consequences for species that are already struggling.
24: It's something we really need to watch carefully.
28: So far though, the rescue efforts seem to be helping. 3,000 birds have died, but the rate has dropped since they started. In addition to clearing away the dead birds so they don't become a vector for infection, a group of veterinarians has also been trying to nurse sick birds back to health.
8: It's one of those things that sometimes has to just work its way out of that. The treatment is providing them supportive care.
28: Jamie Sherman is one of the vets who helped convert a house near the lake into a bird hospital.
8: So this team right now is actually grabbing their first bird.
28: Vets cradle tiny birds in blankets and give them nutrients and water through feeding tubes. The threat of this outbreak should diminish as the weather cools. But rescuers fear an even larger outbreak next spring, especially if El Nino dumps more water across the region. For NPR News, I'm Joshua Yeager at Tulare Lake.
11: Time now for StoryCorps. In 2014, Donna Sailmink was solo parenting her two teenagers in Colorado and often struggling to make ends meet. Donna came to StoryCorps with her daughter, Melissa, to remember the moment that changed their lives forever. Donna says it began when a thunderstorm rolled in.
15: I ran out to smoke really quickly. I took a drag and then just boom. I remember that you barreled into my room screaming. I think I was hit by lightning. The smoke detectors were going off and the dogs were freaked out. You were so off that you didn't know what to do. I remember asking you, can you just look at my body? And My dress wasn't burnt, but I had all these little tiny burns. I couldn't cope or talk to people. And I was just extremely spacey after that. Yeah, you stuttered a lot and you were having a hard time collecting yourself and putting it into words. Yeah. I remember curling up and crying in your lap a lot that summer. And I feel grateful that you're in my life, especially during that time because I was a terrible mom. I was monetarily broke. I didn't know what to do. Now I'm hit by lightning and I'm even less capable. I uh, just got to a place in my life where I was tired of carrying the weight. Yeah. I feel like you needed a lot of space to rebuild yourself and it was tricky. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like you were very neglectful, and I moved out before I graduated high school. And my brother, he needed a parent, and he didn't have that, and I filled in that role, and I was just too young. I'm glad that you can talk to me openly about it. I'm sorry. You, these past few years, have really been making this massive effort to be a parent again. And I appreciate that. I knew I needed to commit and be present for you guys. I just went, whatever it takes. I was going to school and you were helping with finances. I moved back in here for a little bit, you know, after not spending more than a few days together in the past years. Now it's a lot of these very normal things. Like, hey, I just want to take you out for a bite to eat. And it's like, yeah, that's what a mom does. I love doing those things for you. Yeah. I'm still not whole, I'm just walking around doing the best I can, like everyone is. And the best I can do is let you know that you are a top priority in my life. And the only way that I can show you that is to keep showing you it.
11: That was Donna and Melissa Sailmink in Loveland, Colorado. Their StoryCorps interview is archived at the Library of Congress.
20: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness.
11: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Our week-long series on local artists continues. Today we spotlight Boston artist Yui Suche, whose work interrogates systems of power. It's 829.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, on view now. Learn more at pem.org. UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu slash together. And Circle Furniture with sustainably sourced sectionals, sofas, ottomans and more during their annual upholstery event through October, circlefurniture.com.
24: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan says lawmakers in the House need to elect a new speaker as soon as possible.
7: We need to do what we said we were going to do. We need to do what we told them we were going to do when they elected us and put us in office. And frankly, we can't do that if the
24: House isn't open. And if the, we, can't, we can't open the House until we get a speaker. That was Jordan speaking a short time ago on Capitol Hill, ahead of an expected third vote on his nomination today. Jordan came up short in two rounds of voting this week, with fewer Republicans backing him on the second try. Jordan can afford to lose just four GOP votes to secure the 217 needed. President Biden says he will ask Congress for money to help Israel defeat Hamas, as well as additional funds for Ukraine as it continues to battle Russian forces. NPR's Tamara Keith says the president made his case in a speech to the nation last night from the White House following this week's trip to Tel Aviv.
6: Biden has been struggling for months to get Congress to pass an aid package for Ukraine, and the funding to keep sending them weapons is now running out. So the president sought to link Israel and Ukraine together in people's minds.
24: Many Republicans in the House have voiced objections to sending more aid to Ukraine, with Russia's invasion nearing the 20-month mark. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 70 percent of Massachusetts voters support legislation that would allow the state to have overdose prevention centers. That's according to an online survey sponsored by the ACLU of Massachusetts. It found that public health and civil rights groups support the idea of supervised consumption sites. State officials are trying to advance a bill that would allow for these sites in an effort to combat rising overdose deaths. Drivers illegally passed school buses in Peabody more than 800 times during a one-month period. That's according to a study that's billed as the first of its kind in the state. It was carried out by a city-led task force that used cameras mounted on about half of the district's school buses. The task force tells the Salem News it hopes the report will prompt state leaders to create new laws in order to protect students. Some Massachusetts animal adoption centers are waiving adoption fees for certain pets this weekend. That's because shelters around the country are reaching capacity. Mike Kiley is the director of adoption centers and programs at MSPCA Angel in Jamaica Plain. He says adoptions tend to drop off this time of year.
7: It's really crucial that we boost those adoptions, get these animals into homes that need to be in homes uh, where they're going to be loved and cherished like we want them to be. Um, and out of the stress of a shelter environment where they, you know no one wants them to be there for long periods of time.
0: MSPCA Angel is waiving adoption fees this weekend for some older dogs and small animals. It's
25: 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. The Bruins remain
0: unbeaten so far this season. They topped the Sharks 3-1 to last night in San Jose. The Bruins will visit the Los Angeles Kings tomorrow. Highs in the mid-60s today under mostly overcast skies. There's a slight chance of showers. Tonight, cloudy. Temperatures will fall to the upper 50s. Showers are likely overnight and throughout tomorrow. We may see a thunderstorm Saturday. Highs will be in the low 60s. Sunday, highs in the upper 50s with partly cloudy skies and another chance of rain. Right now, it's 55. Five degrees in Boston.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Jarl and Pamela Moen, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, Supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Annie
11: Martinez in Los Angeles, California. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio called for a third vote Friday on his nomination to be Speaker. Of the House telling reporters the House needs to quote elect a Speaker as soon as possible so we can go to work for the American people. I think the American people are thirsty for change.
7: I think they are hungry for leadership, and frankly, they know that the White House can't provide it. They know the Senate won't lead. And they are looking for House
11: Republicans to step up and lead and make change on these important issues. Jordan needs to win over virtually every House Republican to succeed. And as of Thursday night, he seemed far from that goal. Joining us now to discuss this is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. So we heard Jordan say the House needs to elect a speaker as soon as possible. Today sounds like a fine day, Claudia, to elect a speaker. How (laughs) likely is that?
18: It could be unlikely. He was trying to bring a very optimistic... A mystic tone to today, but Truly, he's had a really difficult time trying to turn the opposition within his own conference in his favor. In that first round of voting earlier this week, he lost 20 of the members of his party, could only lose a handful, as we mentioned. And in the second, that list grew. He was able to convince a couple of those folks who voted against him in the first round to vote for him, but he added even more detractors. And the warning is he could add even more today with a third ballot.
11: Now, why is there so much opposition to Jim Jordan? I mean, he was endorsed by President Trump. So why do people not seem to want to vote for him?
18: Well, he has a very controversial past, especially when we look at moderates, frontline members of the Republican Party. He has been in Congress for more than a decade, but it's one point that many of his detractors raise, which is he hasn't passed any legislation. He hasn't worked in bipartisan circles to pass bills. And another major issue, a big presence of this list of members voting against him within his own party are members of the House House Appropriations Committee, and he has often fought against government funding. And this is a major concern, so much so that the chairwoman of the House Appropriations Committee, Kay Granger, is among that list of those voting against him. And to top it all off, Jordan and his allies have used some pretty aggressive tactics to try to flip votes in his favor. There's been reports of death threats against some of these members, fake robocalls in their districts. The list goes on and on. And so the pressure for the opposition to hold on and dig in and keep voting against him is holding strong.
24: Now, the
11: only thing the House can do right now is just to be on television. That's that's all they can do. They can't conduct any business. (laughs) So what are the consequences of this right now? It's so much in the balance domestically and here at home.
18: Right. The consequences are pretty deep. For example, we have a government shutdown deadline approaching on November 17. I talked to one member, a Republican on the House Rules Committee, about this. And I asked him, I said, how long can this go on? When is there going to be uh, some movement on this? And he said, there is no urgency, perhaps November 16th is when people will get moving. Without a speaker, there's legislation like that and aid to Israel. That is
12: all on hold.
11: That's NPR's Claudia Grisalas. Thanks a lot.
12: Thank you. The Russian government has detained an American citizen who worked for the U.S. government-funded radio-free Europe Radio Liberty.
11: State Department spokesman Matt Miller says the U.S. government has not yet officially been notified about the arrest.
7: This appears to be another case of the Russian government harassing U.S. citizens, which is why we continue to have a a level four travel warning and encourage all U.S. citizens not to travel to Russia for any reason.
11: Also, Kermasheva is now the second American journalist in Russian custody. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has been jailed more than 6 months while he awaits trial on espionage charges charges the journal denies
12: NPR's Philip Reeves is in Riga in neighboring Latvia and is following this latest case and we've called him to ask him about it Good morning Philip Good morning So tell us more about this latest journalist to be detained
22: Well, she's an editor with Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty, which is funded by Congress and and whose mission is to promote democratic values and a free press, particularly in areas where these are threatened. She's a dual citizen of the US and Russia. She's also a mom with a husband and two kids. She lives in Prague in the Czech Republic. Her employers say that she covers ethnic minorities in the Russian republics of Bashkortostan and Tatarstan. And in fact, she was in Tatarstan's capital city, Kazan, when she was detained. So, what do the Russian authorities accuse her of doing? Well, her employers say that she travelled to Russia in May because of a family emergency. And they said when she tried to leave soon after that, she was stopped at the airport and accused of failing to register her U.S. passport. Her passports were confiscated and she'd been waiting for that issue to be resolved. And now the Russians have detained her on this other charge, that of failing to register as a foreign agent. Now, this is under a law which the authorities can label organizations and individuals as foreign agents if they receive funding from overseas and are engaged in political activities. And here in Latvia, there are hundreds of independent Russian journalists who've moved here since the invasion of Ukraine, because they can't operate safely or freely in Russia. I've spoken to a number of them, and they say many of them have been labeled foreign agents. Mm-hmm. And they say this law is a tool that Russia uses increasingly to intimidate its critics and silence the free media and civil society.
12: And and what about, have we heard from Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, and have they
22: responded to this event yes indeed I mean her employers are calling for her to be released immediately and to be allowed to go home that same call is coming from the committee to protect Journalists. it's expressing deep concern it says these criminal charges are spurious and uh, are more proof that Russia's determined to stifle independent reporting uh, in fact there's alarm and dismay over this coming from many quarters
12: and obviously you know Brittany Griner the, the basketball star is, is not a journalist but there's certainly echoes of that Here, if this journalist is convicted, what could happen to her?
22: Well, this charge carries a a variety of different potential penalties, the maximum of which is a prison sentence of five years. Russia has been accused of detaining Americans to use them as bargaining chips to exchange for Russians jailed in the United States. You mentioned the case of Brittany Griner. She was released uh, in December after President Biden negotiated a prisoner swap with Vladimir Putin. Obviously, Komashova's employers and family will be hoping things don't reach that stage. That's NPR's Philip Reeves in Riga. Philip,
12: thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about comments yesterday by Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell that provide a little insight into what he might be thinking about the future of interest rates. Another rainy weekend kicks off today with mostly overcast skies and a chance of showers. It'll be in the mid-60s, cloudy tonight and in the upper 50s. Showers likely overnight, then tomorrow a good chance of rain along with a thunderstorm. It'll be in the low 60s, Sunday, upper 50s and cloudy with another chance of rain. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston.
19: WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
0: Cambridge-based Beam Therapeutics is laying off 100 people. That's about 20 percent of its workforce. Company leaders say the cuts come as it narrows its research in an attempt to save money. There are plans to build a seven-story development at the former site of the Notre Dame Church in Worcester. The church in Salem Square closed in 2018 and was torn down shortly after. The Telegram and Gazette reports the plan includes retail space and housing. It's 843.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways, elliothotel.com. Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston artist Ewing Suche uses her paintings and artwork to unpack topics like identity and belonging. She's one of the ten artists we're featuring this week to highlight emerging creatives of color. WBW's Ariel Gray spent time with Ewing in her studio to talk about her latest body of work inspired by viral videos.
8: Ewing Suche uses a thin metal spatula to smear and mix bright oil paints on a piece of glass.
17: See, when you add the oil, it just has this like beautiful sheen to it. And I think when you're learning how to paint, there is a consistency that you can only understand by doing.
8: She's putting the finishing touches on a new painting. The subject is a woman with a ghoulishly long neck and a mouth stretched wide as if in mid-scream her blonde hair whips frantically around her head. Ewing, who is 35, adds shadows to the hollows of her collarbone.
17: You know, the pinks and these these warm, the warmth comes from just having all of these other colors on the side. So this is just like that hot pink I'm adding.
8: This piece is a continuation of a subject Ewing explored in her latest exhibit, Rage and Ecstasy, that was up this summer at the Boston Center for the Arts. The topic in question? The Karen,
17: or the Karen phenomenon, like the viral videos of Karen, and the Karen is, you know, to put it in plain words, um, an entitled white woman that demands service in like a public space that may be unreasonable.
8: Yuing, who immigrated to Boston from Taiwan 25 years ago, often interrogates questions of power, race, and identity in her work. For her. Making art has provided an avenue to break down and examine big, unwieldy issues that impact her as an Asian woman.
17: I think when I first was learning English and adapting to everything, I was in spaces where I felt less than smart. But I would be able to make these things, right? I would be able to draw these things and to conceptualize these things, to grasp it the way I knew how to.
8: As a child, Ewing knew that she wanted to work with her hands— She'd draw herself as an adult, and in her drawing, she'd always portray herself as an artist. Her parents encouraged her creative journey.
17: I used to just paint on the walls in our house, and that was okay. Like, my parents were really relaxed about that.
8: Eventually, Ewing went to Mass Art, where she met Lisa Palawai, the dean of the Office of Justice, Equity, and Transformation. Palawai says that she's always been impressed by the intention that goes into Ewing's work— even when she was a student.
25: I feel like there's so much of what Sue is exploring. It is mirroring reality, but also kind of confronting these ideas about
0: society. And I think it's a really important, in some ways, mirror for us to consider her work.
8: Ewing's painting, Houndstooth, depicts a Karen in a houndstooth jacket standing at what appears to be a Starbucks counter. Her limbs and hair flail in an angry fit. The other customers and workers are painted in cool shades of blue, oblivious to the tantrum being thrown in the store.
17: So again, she and all of us are part of the system and it's not really about like any individual target. It's more like this is a space that creates this type of hierarchy and this type of violence.
8: For Ewing, The case of Amy Cooper in Central Park was her first concrete example of Karen behavior. In 2020, Cooper, a white woman, called the police and claimed a black bird watcher was threatening her. But video evidence proved that Cooper lied about the incident.
17: You know, you think about that hierarchy that exists, that Karen is part of the system of abuse, and she has a certain positionality, and she can take this anger onto people who have less power.
8: Despite the viral popularity of Karen videos, Ewing found that some were still unwilling to engage with the subject matter in her pieces. She says it was hard to find a home for her body of work because it was deemed too divisive. The BCA was actually the first place that wanted to show the series.
17: I think some people had a hard time with the series in the beginning because it feels like, oh, you hate all white women, da da da. da. <laughs> and it's not true. Like, I think about like the women in these images, I actually have a lot of faith in the people that might look like this.
8: For viewers who are disquieted by Ewing's work, she hopes that they are able to move past that initial discomfort and be open to deeper conversations about race, gender, and power.
17: Are you taking power from someone else or are you giving power to people?
8: As Ewing says, the real question lies in how the power is used. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray.
0: To see photos of Ewing's work, go to WBUR.org. This afternoon on All Things Considered, hear the story of a sculptor who's inspired by motherhood and imperfection. Listen after four p.m. and on ninety point nine WBUR and on the WBUR app. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. Right now, it's eight fifty.
19: WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Hitting or paddling students is still legal in 16 states, including Texas, where a principal was arrested for leaving bruises on a student. Now the community is reacting.
2: We have had feedback from outside the district. Some negative, but I think you always evaluate what's in the best interest of our students.
19: I'm Elsa Chang. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9
18: WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this
0: Thursday morning. Israeli officials say they do not plan to control life in the Gaza Strip once the country defeats Hamas. Ohio Republican Jim Jordan is expected to try for a third time today to gather the votes needed to be elected Speaker of the House. And the U.S. Army private who fled into North Korea is being detained by U.S. military officials and charged with desertion. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and non-profit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished.
0: A slight chance of showers today, otherwise mostly overcast and mid-60s. Right now it's 56 degrees in Boston.
28: (laughs) threading
30: the needle between recession and growth
19: marketplace morning report is supported by c3 ai c3 generative ai provides chat gpt enterprise search that is verifiable secure and accurate across all enterprise data c3.ai this is enterprise ai
30: from marketplace i'm sarit Beneshor, in for david brancaccio The country's interest rates can make the difference between a growing economy and an economy headed into recession. Raising interest rates is like an economic Arctic blast cooling the economy, but it also helps fight inflation. We are at the point where the decision on what the Federal Reserve should do next month with interest rates is kind of a day-by-day calculation. Fed Chair Jerome Powell spoke yesterday at an Economic Club of New York luncheon, and he gave us some hints. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer has that.
31: The Fed's playbook is raise interest rates to cool the economy and hopefully inflation. But some parts of the economy are still hot. Consumers spent more than expected last month and companies are still hiring. So Powell says,
23: Given the uncertainties and risks and given how far we've come, the committee is proceeding carefully.
31: That is the Federal Open Market Committee, which sets interest rates. Powell is also keeping his eye on the yield or return on the 10 year Treasury bond. It's been going up and it loosely tracks with rates for some loans like mortgages. So New York Life Investments economist Lauren Goodwin says the bond market has been pushing up mortgage rates. And so in a way it acts just like the Fed's own interest rate policy, although, of course, the Fed doesn't control it directly. Goodwin thinks all these things, the bond market, the uncertainty Powell mentioned, they'll convince the Fed to hold interest rates steady in November. But she says Powell kept the door open to a rate hike at the Fed's last meeting of the year in mid-December. I'm Nancy marshall genser for Marketplace.
30: All right, let's do the numbers. Dow S&P and Nasdaq futures are all down in the three to five tenths percent range with the Dow future down 108 points. The 10-year treasury yield is at 4.966%. If you don't like one restaurant, you can just go down the street to another. That's how competition works. That is not quite how it works in banking. To switch financial service providers, you need access to a lot of your own financial information. And banks do not share it very easily. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is proposing a rule to change that, make it easier for consumers to get and move their data. It has been years in the making. Marketplace Morning
19: Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on. That's why Schwab has financial consultants ready to serve their clients, plus professional answers and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way
30: of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Telemarketing comes in many flavors, some more scammy than others. One niche form is a telemarketing scam specifically targeting immigrants. My Marketplace colleague David Brancaccio spoke with Juan Manuel Pedrosa, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who has done research on immigration scams.
5: I mean, a very diverse community when we say immigrants, many different languages mm-hmm. spoken, people coming to this country with different levels of acquaintance with what the rules are in the United States and what the protections are. It adds complexity in this fight against these
4: scammers. That's right, and this is a diverse and growing immigrant community that we're talking about. One out of five people in the U.S. was not born in this country. About half of immigrants are currently not citizens. And let's be clear, these scams happen because people are looking for answers and help to adjust their legal status. So if you're looking for answers and help for those kinds of cases and someone scams you, it's immediately clear to the person you're reporting it to that you might be in a vulnerable, temporary or irregular legal status living in this country. So the the trust really does have to be there.
5: And are there efforts by watchdogs, government watchdogs, regulators to get the word out?
4: Yes, there are. Immigration law is so complex that it seems like there's endless numbers of new innovative scams targeting people, depending on what's happening on a given day. So you're talking about the American Bar Association, local nonprofits, the American Immigration Lawyers Association. All of these have awareness campaigns targeting fraud and scams. It's gotten to the point where the Federal Trade Commission at the federal level and Immigration and Customs Enforcement have put out information on government imposters, people who are pretending to be Border Patrol and calling people at their home. So in terms of getting the word out, I think we're in a much better place than we used to be in the past. And of course, you then have to back up the awareness with service delivery, translation services, and making sure that people understand that these are crimes and that you can get your documents back and get your money back. And most importantly, we can try to put a stop to the kinds of scams that could target even more people in the future.
5: Was there a specific catalyst for you? I mean, this is an interesting area of research for a sociologist. Did you see something in your life that opened your eyes to the dangers of this? Or was it sort of an accumulation of of experience that led you in this direction?
4: Well, personally, for me and people in my family and people that I grew up with, many of us were on the outside looking in terms of our legal status. Uh, And back in the early 2000s, when there was a little bit of a hope of the passage of a DREAM Act or potentially broader pathways to legalization, we thought that there might be hope to establish the fact that we've been in the U.S. for a while, could prove that we've been living here, could prove that we've been contributing to society. So we personally, I I got an ID at the Mexican consulate. And in that process, I ran into a couple of people who were trying to sell business cards and pens to those of us filling out applications. And in that moment, I realized, wait a minute, for all of the talk and the hope that there might be something opening up in the future, there are people waiting to help. uh, And that's important. But there are also people waiting who look like they're trying to help, but they're really just trying to make make a buck and could be running away Mm -hmm. with your money and running away with your immigration documents. And that's the kind of thing that I saw up close. And I wanted to make sure that we we talked about how this could be affecting other people.
5: Juan Pedrosa is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California,
4: Santa Cruz. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And let's get the word out about these scams.
30: That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio there. Next week, we'll hear how communities are fighting back against these scammers. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media.
0: Mostly cloudy in mid-60s today with a chance of showers. Cloudy in upper 50s tonight. Saturday, showers are likely and a thunderstorm is possible. It'll be in the low 60s. Sunday, upper 50s and partly cloudy with a chance of rain. Right now it's 56 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, CambridgeCulinary.com, MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museums, more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools, and Greener U, design-build firm that plans engineers and builds solutions for getting to car carbon neutrality, greeneru.com.
31: I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.